And now, Canada Hoops, hosted by Maddie Ireland. Welcome everyone to Canada Hoops. I'm Maddie. So thankful you joined us for the first episode. I'm excited to launch the podcast, so let's kick it off. We got a great show for you today. The legend Carl Inglis joins us in a few minutes. Before Carl joins us, I'll give you a quick background on me. I'm a 20-year supporter of Canada basketball and our Canadian players, and basketball has been a huge constant in my life. The passion for the game has never wavered. So here we are with those years of knowledge and support for Canada basketball. It was time to start up Canada Hoop. So I appreciate all my Canada basketball fans from coast to coast to coast rocking with me on the podcast. All right, it's time to get to it with the legend. He's a true icon in Canadian basketball, Newfoundland's finest, my guy, Carl English. Carl, how are you doing today? I'm great, buddy. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm great, too. No, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, it means a lot uh, to have you on the show. Um, I just wanted to, you know, say, Carl, just to, before we get in the episode, like, I really appreciate you coming on just for the idea that, you know, your story, your journey is well known to Canadian basketball fans, but I feel like, you know, your, your story is one that you should always tell. It's your story alone. So, you know, we appreciate you coming on. No, no. Again, it's my pleasure. And, uh, I'm glad you started off this podcast. You've been following Canada basketball now for so many years. So I think it's going to be great. Yeah, it's been a, a 20 year passion for uh, the program for Canada basketball for myself and and Canadian players uh, just to share that awareness of what they've been doing throughout their careers. And uh, I'm excited to do it. Awesome. So uh, let's let's get into retirement. What does retirement look like for you right now? I mean, I, I, do we ever retire is the biggest thing. I mean, I think as, as an athlete, or I like to think of myself as an elite athlete, it was hard to just walk away. Um, from my, I would say from my ankles to the top of my head, I feel like I'm 25 and below the ankles, I'm probably pushing 85. So it's really tough for me when my mind is telling me one thing, but then my body's telling me something else. And I think of 20 years of beating the crap out of my body and that, that stupid hockey mentality of trying to be tough and run through the wall and play with a bad ankle and play with a busted ligament. Uh, it eventually catches up to you. So retirement I'm enjoying. Um, I mean, COVID was difficult, but for me, I'm not going to lie, it was a great time for me and my family because it brought us closer. It shut off the rest of the world from what we were doing. It put us in our bubble and allowed us to really reconnect. It kind of reminded me when we were back in Europe when we just had each other. And, you know, we had a lot of hikes and a lot of family picnics and a lot of outdoors and a lot of exercises and just a lot of time being together. Um, retirement itself has taken on a bunch of different business paths for me. I'm, I'm about to open up uh, my new gym there now, but it's kind of like a trial and run because um, I'm working on a major project of uh, a megaplex. So I want to see kind of what one court looks like and what the revenue streams and different things are and the programs and the kids I can help from that one court. And then if I can multiply that by four in a different location and build a new spot, it'll, it'll kind of be what I'm working on. Um, 
gives me more time with my kids. My son now is uh, will soon be 12. My daughter will soon be 11. And my youngest just turned six. So, you know, I'm really hands-on as a father. Um, I feel that's our biggest legacy. I feel that's the biggest thing, this most important thing we do in our life is is to parent and navigate this for our kids and to be that role model for other kids. So um, needless to say, it's busy. It's probably more busy now than it was when I was playing because when I was playing, I was just on a set schedule. My whole life revolved around basketball, uh, training sessions and recovery, and especially as older in my career players will tell you, you know, just take care of your body. It was, you know, if I'm on the court for, let's say 10% of the day, well, the other 80 to 90 is, is me dealing with, is me dealing with, you know, my, my body and recovery. So it's one of those things where, you know, it's uh, probably more busy now than what I was before. Yeah. If, uh, if you can, Carl, just touch on, you know, you're, you've opened up or getting ready to open up your gym and, you know, the, the club programs just to kind of let people know what that looks like for, for the, the youth there. Um, well, we got a bunch of programs. Uh, I got a lot of young coaches that are out and a lot of former players um, trying to just bring the basketball community back together. I've been fortunate enough to, to work with some of the best coaches around the world, you know, from, from right from college, from Riley Wallace to, to the late Dennis Johnson, and then you go Jay Triano, Mike Malone, Phil Hanley. Like, there's so many coaches there just on this section that I work with. Rick Carlisle, um, you know, Dwayne. There's so there's so many Nate McMillan, and then you go on from my overseas things. A lot of people might know the coaches there, but I've worked with some of the best from Pepe Hernandez to Chus Villareta to to Dusko Ivanovic. So, you know, we've had some, we've had some amazing coaches that, that taught me a lot. And I was always a sponge. I was always a guy with bass basketball. Like I said, was my life. And I, if I wasn't talking hoops or playing hoops, I was watching hoops and studying hoops. So for me, um, now it gives me that chance to instill everything I learned and then everything I did in my path that took me off the Island and the things I had to go through to be successful and just the lessons and all my failures, well, now I can instill and try to teach that with the younger generation. So it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time for our community and for me and my family. Carl, prior to retirement, you launched your book. And I know, I know the, the book was an extensive journey for you to go back, really put your story together. Yeah. Um, if you can just like for me personally, the book was an incredible read. I felt like, you know, I knew your story pretty well. We're around the same age. I think we're actually pretty much the same age and I followed your career and the book just really showed me, you know, your journey and your perseverance and your hard work. Can you just talk about, you know, what that was like to put that together and, and share your story that way? and um really open yourself up um the book was i think the book was the book was approached me i don't know if people noticed but the book was approached to me first when we had our success in hawaii and he actually wanted to do a book and a movie and at the time i was insecure and, and not confident in what really was going on and, and just in me as myself as a person um so then I kept, I was approached again. You want to do a book? You want to do your story? You got to get your story out there. And then I was like, you know, it's not the time. And then I returned back home my last two years to play here in Newfoundland. And I saw the impact that I was having. And I, I had put in some things because I had 
I was in charge both on and off the court. So I put in some things that I took from overseas and I took from Team Canada and different teams. And, you know, after the games, I'd always come out and sign autographs. Um, so we'd have anywhere from five to six, 6,500 fans there. And I would sign autographs every, every home game for an hour to an hour and 45 minutes and take pictures with the fans. And it was kind of like my farewell, to, like, thank you for the support over all the years. And I realized then the impact when people come up to me and not only gen- like two generations, you know, saying, you know, what, what I meant to them and what I instill in their kids and how I'm an inspiration. So when you hear those kind of things, I was like, you know, there's a lot of people out there dealing with a lot of things. If I get my true story out there, well, maybe that can help more. So that was when it first, that was when the first thought came to mind. I knew the book was going to be so painful to write because with all the successes I've had, there's been a lot more failures. There's been a lot more tragedies, right? So when I when I checked in and decided, I was like, I knew, I knew it was going to be tough, but I didn't realize it was going to be one of the toughest things I ever did. So um, Blake came down. So basically, we would do, I would say, ten hours of recordings a day for a week, and then he'd go back through them and anything we missed. So I was basically going through every inch of it. And every detail that I could remember and a lot of the stuff, especially with tragedy, I don't know if it was real because I was only five, but these are the things that flash in my mind. These are the things that stick in my mind. These are the memories that jog to me when I think of my parents dying in the house fire and I think of people on flames and I think of, you know, the house burning down. They're just like flashes and glimpses that come to you. So I was trying to dig and and dig deep and try to find like, articulate i guess everything to make it the reader understand what i'm truly feeling you know so it it took i I went to bed that first night i looked at my wife and i think it was only like nine o'clock on a beautiful summers it was in july and i was just physically exhausted i was like i swear i played five games of basketball today I, i was mentally drained and i just completely crashed and it was like that i would say for four or five days and then once i got into it i was like holy shoot what what have i really started here you know and then once i started i had to keep going but then it was the tragedies and then it was the lonely nights and then it was separation from my brothers and then it was dealing with a new family and you know the blame on myself and then questioning why not me like i I was in some very very dark places and basketball helped me basketball saved me i think to you know gave me that passion gave me that purpose made me feel whole again and instilled me with confidence to, to go out and, and survive as a child, you know, as a lost child, an orphan child, separators from his family on the middle of Newfoundland with a town of 50 people. Like, I, I don't think people understand where I truly come from, you know? Right. I, uh, well, let me do a little plug for the book. If you haven't read Carl's book, Chasing a Dream, the Carl English story, it's an amazing read. Um, I, if you're a Canadian basketball fan, it's a must have. Uh, we're, we can get it at Flanker Press, right? That's where we get it. Yeah, Flanker Press is probably on, uh, I know it's on Amazon. I know it's on uh, Apple iTunes, um, and Android, Kindle, all these, all these other devices. So, um, Indigo should have it as well. So there's a bunch of different places that will offer it. Okay, everyone go get Carl's book here. Uh, you talk about the passion starting as a kid and, and the game was an outlet for you. Um, you know, just talk about that passion growing and, and playing on that hoop on Route 100. Like that's, 
I mean, that story and the start of that is incredible. It, is the hoop still there, Carl? Like, I'm curious. Is like still standing? The hoop is, the hoop is in a garage there. Um, the plan is to what I want to do now. I'm going to do it this summer when it comes up. Everything kind of got messed up with right. COVID this year. But right. the plan for me now is I got to take it right off the road and basically put in a, a culvert and then fill it in with gravel and then pave that little area and then just put it back 10 feet off the road because in the wintertime, the plows would come and, you know, you'd see there's some CBC did a documentary and you see the plow going by and there's the, the mate where they go around my net. Yeah. It's still there. So I used to go down and shovel that part off. So it's uh, obviously it's not something you can have on the highway in the road and in the wintertime. So, um, but I would like to rebuild it and kind of as like a permanent fixture that will stay there. So that that's going to be a summer project for me, 100%. I think maybe we got to reach out to the premier and get that to be like a, you know, a <laughs> national park and we'll get going on that there. Yeah, no, it was, uh, you don't realize the support. What was, uh, I don't know if I put the picture in my book or not, but when I got, when I was undrafted and was going through that process of trying to, trying to get a team, my neighbor up there put up some signs and people were coming from all around Newfoundland and right. it's, it's a big tourist distraction attraction out there with the bird sanctuary. So people would come by and it was like, I think he had on it. Uh, you're still the best Carl. We love you. And then people were just signing their support. And he said he had to run it and he ran it all the way down. Like he, I think he ran it like 200 feet of plywood just hanging and people were coming from all over on this whiteboard and signing it. So there, there, there's been a lot of people along the way. And, you know, I think that was the biggest thing. It's just, you know, when I came back, it was just to, just to thank these people for the support. No question. No question. So you're a young hooper. You're putting in, you know, the hours alongside the road. You know, who who did you look up to and, you know, who did you pattern your game after that you really like, man, I love this guy. That's, that's who I want to be like. See, I'll tell you again so you can see where I really come from. We grew up with two channels. We actually had four, but it was uh, three and four and 11 and 12, but they were both the same, CBC and NTV. So there was no there was no sports games on. So the games that I would see would be um, videos, Come Fly With Me, uh, the Pistons documentary, Larry Bird. And then when uh, Nash and the boys were in the Olympics, you know, just seeing these games come on CBC because they covered them back in the day. Um, but then one the family that raised me, my cousin, he, he went away to university and he went to the, the big city. So um, he would tape off the games for me that would come on NBC. And then I just rewatch, you know, the Bulls and any other, any other teams like that. So I kind of just patent my game after whatever I saw. I was kind of intuitive in the sense if I saw an older kid doing things, I would try to try to do that, but do it better. If I saw a move on the NBA, I try to patent that. So anywhere from Michael to anybody, it didn't really, the big, the big people would be, I would say Steve Nash, Michael Jordan, people like this, you're just watching moves and you're trying to implement them. So that was kind of my thing. So, you know, you're, you're growing and you're into high school, you're at Fatima and, you know, it's, it's clear that you're head and shoulders above everybody. And so you, you got to leave Newfoundland, yeah. you know, to get that competition and get that exposure. Just talk about what that was like in that, that process. For me, um, 
there was a point when I just felt, I, I, like I said, basketball was my way out and it was my passion. So I played on the provincial teams there. I played on the Canada Games team when I was 16. And at the time it was under 19. So I kind of got my first taste in. Um, and after that, I realized like I really wanted to get a college scholarship. There was no aspirations at this point to play in professional. There was a pamphlet came out from Newfoundland basketball in the mail and they were just showcasing, uh, it was Andre Sola. Uh, that was at St. Thomas Aquinas in Oakville, and he went to George Washington. And I was just like, I want to go there. I want to get. A, I want to put myself in a situation to get a college scholarship. Um, so I packed up and I fished that summer to raise some money, and didn't play. I didn't play for my provincial teams. I just went away, and I went up to Ontario. I lived in Oakville, right on the border of Oakville, Mississauga, and I went to St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, just following in Andre's footsteps just to try to get recruited. The unfortunate thing happened was the teachers went on strike. So I'm, I'm up here and I'm going to school and I'm playing and I'm tearing up the school, but I can't play against anybody. So then to try to finish my dream or chase my dream, I would say I went and I had my buddy go with a video camera and he just recorded me doing highlights and dunks. And I put on the end of that, I put on a game from my grade 11 year in, in Newfoundland and um, that got your attention. So I had like 60 points. I was in championship game and they just liked how I moved. So I sent this out. I went with the guidance counselor and I sent it out to 125 schools. I just picked the schools that I thought were cool and that would be a good education. And I sent out, packed up the videos and I recorded them. I, I was doing six at a time for months in the, in the video recording room. So it takes three, four hours. So I put it on in the morning when I show up to school and I get, I think I get six to 10 done a day or definitely five to six for sure. And I package them up and, you know, go and send them to the schools and then the schools will contact me back saying, we want to see you. And I was like, no, well, we're not playing. So I was just thinking like, what the hell am I doing here? It's all, you know, it's all going downhill. So then we, uh, I got tangled up with a, with a team up there, Adidas Prep Stars, just from a, a guy at the school someone met. Um, and I started playing with them. It was, it was like an all-star team, one of the first AAU teams from, from Canada and, you know, had, had some, some straight savages on there and that kind of got me more noticed there. Um, the whole year we went and the teachers, I was going to transfer because the cool, the school across the street was a public school and they had basketball, but the Catholic school, um, couldn't play, but my aunt didn't want me to transfer schools. And then just starting all over again was kind of tough. So, um, I went and finished out the year. We had no school. We did one, one tournament just when it came off. It was just, I think Burlington, there was like seven or eight teams. I think I scored 40 points you know, a game there in those tournaments. I was just itching to get after it. Um, but then, so we we went then with this AUA team. We went traveling, and I, they took me to Atlantic Cape Camps. We drove down in a big old van, and we went down there. And that was the same time as Nike All-Star and Adidas Prep Star. Um, I dominated that camp, and a lot of people came over from Nike Five Star and Adidas and they watched me play. I was MVP of the camp. And then uh, in the all-star game, they came over and I was MVP of that, uh, 30 or 40 in the championship. And after that, I had a bunch of offers. And um, But the issue was that this is in July, so a lot of scholarships are full. Um, so a lot of teams were like trying to put me, like Syracuse were trying to put me in a prep school. Other teams were trying to put me in prep school. Um, so Hawaii was there. And I guess you're, I had offers from Dayton and Creighton and, 
mid, a lot of mid majors, you know, uh, Notre Dame, just teams like this. And, but my whole intentions were to go to the, to the school in Pennsylvania. So I was going to do one more year at a prep school. I was going to follow that, that route to just to play basketball. Um, but they were late getting their paperwork ready. So Hawaii came on and they followed me up to Canada and they came to Newfoundland. At, uh, the scout was super, super aggressive. Scott Rougeau. Wow. He really wanted me. So he came down to Newfoundland, met my aunt and uncle and he was like, just come on a visit. You know, you have five visits. You didn't take any. And I was like, why not? I was like, I'll never have a chance to get to anywhere besides here. So I was like, let me go to Hawaii. And before I boarded, the prep school finally had their paperwork. So Syracuse called me and they're like, we got your paperwork all set up at the prep school. Whatever you do when you go to Hawaii, don't sign. Um, you know, he's like, oh, it's all smoke and mirrors. And this is normal thing. This is your first recruiting trip. Like, you know, you got to take a couple. And anyway, I went to Hawaii and the rest is history. <laughs> I signed when I was out there. I mean, that's just. I mean, you can't blame me. I mean, Hawaii is Hawaii, right? It's, yeah, it's, uh, exactly. Was it was it pretty much always them? Like, I mean, I know, I mean, I know the story of the possible year for the prep school and then Syracuse, and, and um, but could it have been anyone else? Was it really close, or was I mean, Hawaii just kind of hook, line, and sinker? No, it was. It was basically I was not almost fully per- committed. I wouldn't even went to Hawaii if the prep school had to have its paperwork together. Cause I went on a visit to Cedar prep school. So they came and picked me up and they drove me down and it was in Pennsylvania. So I went with the coach and they showed me the prep school and I had everything ready to go, but they didn't have their paperwork ready. So then when in between that and Hawaii, we went to, we went to a tournament in New York and we ended up winning the tournament. It was Demar Johnson and all these guys were in it, but I had 43 in the final. And I was like going against guys going to Virginia and going to these places. And I'm just like, I'm ready. Like, let's go. And, uh, you know, so that kind of solidified. And then I was like, well, let me go to Hawaii on a visit and see what it's really like. And, you know, so I think then when I got out there and met everybody and obviously you're blown away when you go to a place like this and they, you know, I'm not used to, they were, you know, fine dining you and telling you everything you wanted to hear. And, you know, it's, it's not reality the next year, but it is what you want to hear right then. Right. 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 So you met, you, you're in Hawaii you're there, you're starting to, you know, make your mark. Um, was that the first time, like, at any level where you're, like, your eyes are really open and, you know, guys are at that next level, like, wow, I really got to put in the work, you know, I got to step my game up. I know you, you dominated at every level. So was that the first time you're just like, man, like, I got to really, I got to bring it here? No, I, it was weird. Like I went out there as a freshman and I felt I was doing my thing, but I was a freshman. Like I, I'm, I'm in a different country and I'm, I'm eight, 9,000 miles away from home. And it's not like today. There's no FaceTime. There's no, I didn't even have a cell phone. There was no, barely internet was just starting to come out, right? Like no computers, no nothing. I used to sneak into the, I used to sneak into the stand sheriff and go to the media room to call home. So like people talk about NCAA, like I had no money, no money from home, no way to call home. I'd sneak into the office and if the coaches caught me, I'd get in trouble. But I was just, I was just trying to call my family. Like I had, you know, that, that's all I was trying to do. Um, so it's different, but my first year I redshirted because I had ankle surgery, right. um, but I came out of that ankle surgery 
And I felt then, cause that would have been in February. So I came out of that and I was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm six months in now. So, uh, I got my grades together. I got my time management together. I got a gym access whenever I wanted. So I was starting to fit my groove. So then I came home and that was my first year to play for team Canada on under, under a 21 or something. So I was still young at the time. I was like 18 or 19. Um, but then I went back as a, I went back as a freshman with a lot of confidence, you know, and I went back with a hell of a lot of confidence, but still at this point in my career, there was no intentions about playing pro. There was, there wasn't even, didn't even, didn't even come to my mind. It was more so, you know, let's see where it takes us. Um, my first year I struggled in the sense the coach wouldn't give me, wouldn't give me the time. Um, and again, midway through that year, I reached back out to the contacts that I had at Syracuse and we were looking at transfer. And basically he went through, I was killing in practice. I'm not even lying to you. I, and the best part of it for me was I was always on the scout team. So I'd always be the best player on the other team. So I would be allowed if they were just come down and jack everything. Well, I could do that in practice. So I was always that guy on the scout team. So I never really played with the first and the second team, but I was always the star on the third team. But then I was giving it to those other two guys, uh, other two teams. And that just helped me spike my confidence to a whole new level. Like one day, I think I hit 12 threes in a row. The coach got so mad that he made them all run because he's like, he hits another three. Guys were like, don't shoot it, don't shoot it. I was like, man, I'm coming. And sure enough, they ran for the next hour. Like everybody hated me, but I was like, I'm here now. And then like, what? but in my mind, I was practicing for what was next. I wasn't practicing for there because I truly believed I was going to leave. And then the couple of seniors came to the coach because the other guards weren't, because I was a point guard at the time. The other guards weren't working out. They're like, you got to give them a chance. And he just refused to not want to play freshman. So the last 10, last 10 games of the season, he played me. And at that point, my numbers, I was getting, you know, 12 to 15 points a game, five, six assists, five, six rebounds. But my numbers were so low before because I'd played two, three minutes, you know, periodically. But then we went into the WAC tournament and I dominated the WAC tournament. And I ended up getting MVP of the tournament. But in the championship game, I think I had 28 or 32, but hit all the points in overtime, hit the shot to put it in overtime. And then we went to the NCAA tournament. So that was instantly my life changed and turned upside down. I went from about to transfer to the coaches not even looking at me, to nobody there to help me or to assist me, to now all of a sudden I'm a star, I'm the big man on campus, everybody wants to help me, everybody wants to bring me food, everybody wants to offer me a job. Every, like, everything that they told me when I went as a freshman now was coming to life, and now they believe in me. So then I went, I went home that summer and I just trained even harder than ever and even more and more and more. So I went back to my sophomore year and I was, I was ready to go then. Now I'm dating myself here a little bit. I mean, I mean, we're around the same age, but I'm pretty sure that's kind of like the first time I really got wind of you was, you know, your university of Hawaii and I was in college too. And yeah, it was just, it was this amazing story and you, you just caught fire like everywhere. It was, it was incredible. Yeah, no, that was a that was a good point, and that, that was a good time. And then our sophomore year, we came back with that confidence as a team, and then we went and set Hawaii's record for the most wins. And you know, uh, our main guard Savo Petrovic was out majority of the season because of the NCAA rules. He was suspended because he played pro over in uh, Yugoslavia somewhere. 
So um, for me, it gave me that freedom to now it's my team. And then when he came back, we gelled, but I still averaged 16, 17 points a game. And a lot of people felt that year I should have went pro. But again, in my mind, I, 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 it wasn't even a thought. I was My goal was to get a college education, then I'd see. So I continued. I was hearing the noise. I continued to dominate and do my thing. And as a junior, like that was big for there. We were winning. We went into the tournament again, which was big. And, you know, so then that year was great. Then I went on to my junior year where those guys are left. And now it's my completely team, my team. So I averaged 20 points a game. I was an academic All-American. I was on the Wooden Award list. And it just seemed like, you know, ESPN had me in magazines, sports trailer. My story was getting out there and I was taken off. The thing that's no one now looking back, Hawaii was a great place to go to college. Don't get me wrong, but a great place to get noticed to go to play professional after. Not so good because they, they never see you. If you're in the ACC or you're in the Big Ten and you're always in the spotlight and you're always on TV, that that's something people can easily readily access. You know, they when I'd show up in Fresno, there'd be 30 scouts there because they never could see me out playing in Hawaii, you know? So every time I go on the road and I had some big games on the road, but everybody plays better at home. It's just, you sleep in your own bed and everything. So there were still some things there. I was, you know, whack first team, uh, player, all the things, you know, and I, I just felt at that point I graduated. So I graduated as a junior. I did all my courses in the summer. I was taking like 12, 15 credits in the summer as well. So I could fast track to graduate. Cause that was a goal of mine. And then I just said, Shag, it's time is now to, you know, to enter the draft. Um, I entered in the sense of I'm going to do all these workouts and I was planning on returning back to school. Um, two, two issues happened with that. I took some really bad advice. I should have went with Steve Nash's agent, Bill Duffy, right. uh, went with the wrong agent, but then there was another hiccup. I, I worked out for 13 teams and in order for me to go back to college, I had to pay back all that money. So it was like 75, 80 grand. So the flights, the hotels, the food, in order for me to be eligible for my senior year, that money had to be paid back. And I, I didn't have that kind of money. My family didn't have that kind of money. So I kind of I kind of had no choice. So even though I was undeclared up until like even after Portsmouth and everything, I was undeclared. And then once I did those workouts, in order for me to go back, someone had to pay that money for me. And I, I just I just couldn't come up with that money. I mean we know the story. You go pro, you go undrafted. I don't want to touch on that too much because I feel like your career without that is amazing and, and should be celebrated. You know, you have an an outstanding career in Europe. Yeah. You know, what what are your your best memories of playing overseas and some of your favorite stops? And I know your time in Spain was super successful. If you just want to touch on your whole journey there. Um. I'll go through it all and I'll tie in the draft and things. I mean, obviously the draft was, was a nightmare. Um, living that and going through that with a year left of eligibility uh, after graduating, I didn't have to worry about school. I could have, you know, focused on a master or done whatever. Um, I think for young, young athletes and people out there, I think you got to have people in your corner that you really trust. I think things have changed a lot. Like now with the players association and people out there that can give you a right idea of where you're going to be selected. Because I was I was on draft boards as high as twenty one and as low as thirty five and end up going undrafted. So I think you gotta make, you know, the correct decisions because 
it's easier now, but when I came through, if you didn't make it then, it was really hard to go back. Guys are making the jump from Europe now because the level is gone. It wasn't like that when I was there. So I played two years in the D-League, um, bounced around, had had great chances there. Uh, got a call from Orlando. Uh, they were going to sign me for the rest of the season. I was playing well, playing really well, shooting shooting 50-something percent from three. They were bringing me in for the last six, seven weeks of the season. and then. Uh, called my agent, went to the airport, got my stuff, everything. And then they called, said that a big guy got hurt in practice and we're going to keep looking at you, but go on back to your D league team. And there's only six teams at the time. So the whole structure is totally different now, but I called my agent. I was like, I'm done with this roller coaster, man. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take it to overseas. He came at me with some big money and we went to first year was in, uh, Virtus Bologna. Then we went to Croatia, struggled a little bit in Virtus in the sense of just adjusting to everything. Had a pretty good season, uh, but not nothing crazy. Eight, ten points, but didn't play. Only played 15, 17 minutes. My next year, I went to Croatia, Zadar. I was coached by uh, Drag, Dragon Petrovic, brother Aso Petrovic. Um, so we went through. We went through there, and I led that league in scoring and the Adriatic League. I dominated that and was MVP. And then I had a lot of offers. I had options to go back to and, and try training camps. So I done that. But it always seemed like it was never the right situation. But um, after my year in Croatia, I had EuroLeague offers, but I also had Spain. So I went two years in Gran Canaria. Then I went to EuroLeague team uh, Victoria. We won a championship there. Um, at this stage, I think my first and second and third year in Spain, even fourth, fifth, this was, this was my highest level of basketball. The issue I had or the problem I had and the mistake and probably my biggest regret was now I'm legit. Now I'm one of the best players in Europe. And at that point, the money was so good that I would have took a pay cut to go to the NBA. Mm-hmm. So my regret is, is that I didn't leave the money and go try it because, again, I, I was at my best shape. I was My mindset was correct. Everything about it was correct. Um, I almost had a, a partially guarantee. I went in with Toronto in the summertime when Jay was there. And I had a great camp. And it was between me and a guy, uh, you'll remember, Jamarian Moon. Um, oh, yeah, sure. I had an amazing camp. I mean, I shot the piss out of the ball, um, 18 for 21 one day. I was playing combo guard. And I called my agent. I was like, it's between me and another guy. And he's like, well, who is it? And I told him. I said, he's like, well, what do we do? I said, well, the one thing he's doing is every water break, he jumps from the free throw line. Or he windmills with his head above the rim. And I said, that's all he's doing. But I said, every time he does it, there's 18 executives over on the side and they almost fall off at their chair. And sure enough, they went and gave Jamario a partial guarantee, not me. And I went back overseas. And then after that, I was kind of like, I'm just going to take this as far as I can take it over there. So I played almost 10 years in Spain. I led the Spanish league in scoring. I won championships. Um... Then we went to Puerto Rico. I went to Ike Athens in Greece. I went back to Spain for a couple of years. And I went to Alba Berlin, another EuroLeague team. Then I went back to Tenerife. Then I came back to St. John's and I finished out my career in Canada. I was just at a stage where my kids were older. Um, as I was going on some of these teams, they were staying for longer periods of time. And it just got, it just became a lot harder. So, me coming back home had a big decision, left a lot of money on the table, and I came back home for, for my family and, and, and for my province. to you know The chance to play in my hometown was unheard of. 
And now I get to sleep in my, ha- my house and, and drive my car and go, you know what I mean? Experience something I never experienced and continue to play basketball and, and help out the community. It was, it was pretty amazing. I'm not going to lie. I just want to get into your time on the national team. And one thing that really stands out to me, Carl, is, um, you know, throughout your seasons in Europe, you always made the effort to play for Canada, even, you know, despite battling injuries. And I think, you know, that's something that should be celebrated. And I feel like, you know, you are a vital reason why, you know, the talent level and the program has come this far. You you and other guys, but I feel like, you know, your time on the team was incredible. And um, I just want to talk about, you know, some of your, your favorite teammates on those national teams and, and memories. Because one thing that's really evident is the camaraderie that you guys all had. And you know, you can see you can see that in your book. I mean, your testimonials from your yeah teammates on the national team are amazing. I mean, I, I was looking at it yesterday. You know, getting ready for the conversation, and I was just like, you know, I've read the book before, but you see it again, and it's you know, Jay Triano is calling you a, a Canadian basketball treasure, and I just feel like you know, your time on the national team really set the stage for. I think a lot of young players, I think it showed that a lot of players, no matter where you're from in Canada, can can play for the team. And if you just want to talk about, you know, your time with those guys and that brotherhood on that team. I mean, it was something special. I think the power of playing for your country is, you know, you're fighting for something bigger. Um, there's no money involved, so it takes all that out of it. You're in there, I call it like a band of brothers, and every year you're coming back and you're trying to focus and, and achieve that goal. And, I mean – the camaraderie I have there with, you know, the Jesse Youngs and the Doran Camps and, and Heslip and Nichols, like there's so many guys that I played with and even Steve and the guys there that you, you, you work with and you become to, to trust and, and to become like family, you know? So, um, every summer we go in and you're fighting for six weeks. So you go in and six weeks of training and battling and you're spending so much time. There's no one else there. So you're just spending time, with, with your guys and then you go on the road then you're on the road for almost a month in in crazy countries and you know you're with each other non-stop so if you have good camaraderie it obviously increases your probability and your chances of winning if you like your guy if you like each other you fight for each other so that was one good thing we had there um a lot of greats gone through the program and i think now the heights i, I don't look at it and see yeah i'm sure i had a, a part or a role to play but there's so many people that came before me as well. And I mean, the stamp that Jay put on it and Steve and, and guys like this, and even before them, like it's been years and decades of excellence that now there's a pipeline. And I think it's a combination of the efforts that were done myself and others. But then I also think it's the generation we're in where you can't hide no more. If you're good people, it's really easy to find people, you right. know, we do have a pipeline and there's for years there was a lot of people that just got lost in the mix and it's the same like when we were overseas there's guys like there's teams you look when nba teams play madrid and they played us they lost you know and everyone's like oh it's preseason but you know yeah you're not coming in and beating the lakers or the Bulls, teams like that but that last 10 teams you guys are fighting like it's not it's not a walk in the park and especially now so the level is the level of talent has just gone up everywhere and the game, as, as large as the world is, the game has become smaller in the sense of 
everybody can play it. And that little discrepancy between one level and the other is very, very small. But Team Canada is bright now. It's brighter than it ever is. I think the biggest issue is getting people to play. And that was the hardest part with us. And I, I'll talk about it from a player standpoint because a lot of people don't know this. You, me, myself, media, everybody wants everybody to play. Right. But you got to understand it from a player. When I played, there's always the issues. And you know my background with people getting injured. I got injured. And, you know, there's issues with insurance and different things. So you take – I look at Kelly. I'm very close with Kelly Owen. So you look at Kelly this year. Kelly was a vital part. Kelly came in with Team Canada and, oh, we only tweaked his knee. Well, that tweak was four months. Right. Well, guess what? While Kelly's sitting on the bench and rehabbing his knee, do you think the other guys are waiting for Kelly to come back? No, they're, they're taking his spot. Now he's got to fight into the rotation. Now he's got to fight from, from the 15th to the 12th to the 10th and, and get his minutes. But during that time, that other guy that got his time, he's not giving that up now. So the part that people don't understand is you're going in. These are very large contracts, but it's not only this one, it's their next one. So you take Jamal now. Jamal just came off the best playoff run, I guess, from a a Canadian sense since Steve. Right. Right. So Jamal is set to get paid sooner or later. So what's the risk now of him playing? I bet it all changes. You know, you know, yes, you might say you have insurance, but if you do have that injury and you do get the insurance, that's one thing. But now you have a setback. A lot of players have got hurt and they've never been the same again. So there's a lot of things you got to think about now. I know it's it's great to play for your country. I did it. I was always answered the call. I always played. I played 12, 14 years. So I understand it from that sense. And I always played. I played when I had a contract. I always had a, pl- a contract when I came in with Team Canada. So I was never like a guy that was fighting for a contract or fighting to get a look. So I understand where these guys are coming from, but then it's also people have to understand what they're putting on the line as well to play. So there's a, there's a lot more meets the eye. Um, hopefully if we can get the guys out, I think we're top two, top three, and we're fighting for a medal hands down, in my opinion. No, I agree. I mean, you know, as a 20 year fan and the passion for the national team and our players, I mean, yeah, I'm excited. And, and that's a, a big reason of launching a podcast at this point, but it, I'm also very realistic. We're all people, we're all uh, people with families and, and responsibilities. So I would never fault a guy for not playing. Yeah. We all, we all have our reasons. Like you said, okay, Carl, give me your top five Oof. starting five Canadian players. That's a tough one. Past, present. Uh, guys you played with, and I'd be disappointed if you didn't put yourself in that. I would be disappointed in myself, too, if I didn't put myself in there. Put me alongside of Steve Nash, I might average 40. Uh, (laughs) A guy like that just makes everybody better. So obviously, I go with Steve. Um, I got to throw myself in there. I'm probably playing small ball. You got to put, I think you got to put Wiggins in there. You got to put I mean, after what Jamal just done, you got to put him in there. Yep. And then, like, I, it's easy right now because you can focus on this generation because there's so many of them. But then when you go back to the older generations, there's, I mean, there's some studs too. I mean, can Rick Fox count? Can, you know, do these guys count? He suited up, right? It's your five. It's, it's whoever you want, man. We can we can do a six-man off the bench too. I mean, Give me so I know for sure you got Steve, Wiggins, Jamal, myself, and then unless we're going with all shooters, <laughs> we probably have either you got oh boy. 
you know, dark horse might be freaking Kelly, you know, because he just makes the game so much easier for everybody else. Uh, so much easier. Like that guy is amazing to play with and how he understands the game. And he's so smart. Um, they give you a top 10 and you go with, uh, you can't forget Corey, true winner. You can't forget Tristan, you know, the yeah. stuff he does. Right. And then go back to Coach Triano, uh, Barrett, both, both generations of, of Barrett. So, you know, there, there, there's some studs there over the, over the years. I mean, McCullough, you know, if you're going big, I know the game big is you go big, big right? Um, right? Jesse Young, another dark horse people forget about, had a great European career. Melvin yeah, Egypt, yeah. another amazing guy. So there's been there's a hell of a generation there, I must say. Well, I'm glad you put yourself into it. That that's yeah. what I look at. I'll be mad at myself. Uh, I don't want to take too much of your time here, Carl. I appreciate you coming on. One last question um, or comment, I guess you know you're home now, just you know, and you're you're giving back to the community. Um, you know, that, that's that got to be a good feeling just to be home. You know, you talked about coming home, playing for St. John's, but I think people now can really, you know, give you your flowers and, and, you know, just show that appreciation for you, you know, now that you're home and just, you know, just talk about your home and just that feeling of just, like you said, being home, giving back every day. I mean, home is a special place for everybody. Anybody that's, you know, that, that grew up where I grew up and had the support from the, the, your friends and family and, and the community like I did, you know, you always, you always feel appreciative and you always feel thankful. And now that I'm back, it's almost like a full circle because I left it so young. And then when I came back, I, I came back a different person. I came back a man. Like I was gone. When I came back home, I was away for longer than I was born. You know what I mean? So I was away for over half my life, you know, 70% of my life. So for me to come back home and now see the next generations and see my community and see the things I can do, I was sitting at the space yesterday. So I'm waiting on hoops. So it's completely, it's completely dark. Couple of lights are there. So I got there. So you see there's six cubby holes and inside each cubby hole, I put these lights and it shines down. I picked six pictures. So I got a picture of myself and Colby playing. I got a picture of a uh, Canada team when we won the Pan Am medal. I got a picture of uh, a picture from Hawaii when we're in the NCAA tournament. I shoot a jump shot against Xavier. I got a picture from Fatima where I'm dunking and the stage is just full up with people. And I got a picture of Indiana. And they were the only lights on in the thing. And I'm just sitting on the chair and, and I'm just looking back. And I just think of just – I just thought of – just 25 years of just blood, sweat, and tears. And, you know, it, it really just hit home to me, like, how much the game meant to me and how much time and effort I put into this to get to where I got to. Because if you see where I come from and you know my story, there's no chance I should have got out. So, you know, it just testified that hard work, determination, and perseverance can trump anything else, buddy. So for me, it was a pleasure chatting with you. It was a pleasure. And thank you for all your support over the years. And it was an honor to be on with you, man. Well, I can't say enough uh, thanks to you, Carl. I mean, it is—it's an honor to have you on. I know for the first episode, you were—you were my guy. I had in mind, and uh, you know, really appreciate you coming on. And uh, you'll always be a friend of the podcast. Awesome, buddy. Thanks again, and great job. And I'm sure we'll chat periodically. Absolutely. Thanks, Carl. Hey, buddy. Take care. 
Well, that's a wrap on the first episode of Canada Hoops. I want to thank Carl English for coming on. I want to thank you for listening. You can find Canada Hoops at Canada Hoops Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. Until next time, I'm your boy, Matty. Thank you for listening to Canada Hoops. Oh,